Hi, and a warm welcome to all of you. Glad you could join our podcast. My name is Kate Cole, and I'm head of bank and partner strategy at TraxPay. My partner is Stephen Batiste, the CTO of TIS. Stephen is our resident tech wizard. He began writing code at age seven and designing video games when he was a teenager. Stephen has never looked back since. Today, we are very pleased to be talking with Jörg Reuter, Principal Solution Consultant, making AI, ML, and decisioning work for business systems or businesses at Pegasystems. Jörg, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Kate and Steve. Our pleasure. Okay, I'd like to begin by asking you to tell us a little bit more about yourself and your career path and exactly what you're doing at Pegasystems. <laughs> All right. So yeah, I, I do actually come from a computer science background. So by, by nature, I'm pretty technical, although it doesn't show as much these days, I suppose. Um, I spent several years in the ATM self-service industry, so I was on the software side and eventually made it to fraud prevention and security as, as a focus topic. So um, yeah, the, the, this career path gave me the, the opportunity to travel quite a bit in the last years. So I've lived in Netherlands and in Singapore. I've seen all continents, many, many countries around the time. And um, the last four years, I actually spent with FICO as a pre-sales consultant for fraud prevention in EMEA. And um, this year, it was time for something new. And this is why at the beginning of the year, I joined PECA Systems as, uh, uh, as a solution consultant. So basically taking my experience in the financial uh, space and applying it to a bit of a broader topic. Okay, fair enough. Um... We're probably going to concentrate a little bit more on your background in terms of the whole fraud and cybersecurity, because I know it's very interesting to our uh, audience, but feel free to throw in other pieces. So first of all, I'd like to start with sort of perhaps a provocative question, but do you really think that banks and corporates are truly doing enough to help solve the issues of fraud and cybercrime? What is your opinion, Eric? Yes and no. That is always a not very not a very satisfying answer. I know, but um, I mean, let's, let's darn. Look at... <laughs> I want an answer. <laughs> I mean, let's let's look at banks or FIs first. Um, I think in terms of cybercrime these days, the the IT security at banks and FIs is in an okay state. It's not perfect, but it's much better than it, than it used to be. And um, it was about time as well, right? Good to hear. <laughs> and I mean, still we have um, data breaches. We still see hacks happen, but it's, it's more an outlier when these days you have a really big one where a lot of um, customer data gets lost. It's, it's more needle, needle pins, right? Um, smaller stuff over time. You, you do still, still see um, customers' devices being attacked, of course. Malware on PCs, malware on, on, uh, on mobile phones and this sort of thing. But... These days we have multi-factor authentication, we have biometrics, we have a lot of um, protection mechanisms in place. So that is mm -hmm. um, getting more and more difficult for, for the bad guys, I would, I would say. Yay, so, bad guys. <laughs> I know, <Ooh>. I know. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, and so IT security, I would say, 
okay, not great, but I would argue acceptable. In terms of fraud, which is one of my um, pet topics, of course, um, I think it's a little bit different. Um, we, we do see fraud changing quite a lot in the last couple of years, and um, we, we see new challenges. And banks and, and corporates as well are struggling to keep up with this kind of change. And uh, I think we'll probably talk about this uh, pandemic at sure. some point as well, right? Mm -hmm. But yes. um, <laughs> generally speaking, um, what we see in the fraud space is that banks have adopted these new technologies, artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, to de detect fraud in the different channels. So it used to be in uh, the credit card space. This was commonplace for the last few years, but it's now being adopted in other channels as well. And it's sort of embedded in all these different um, kind of payments products and all these kind of processes. Um, also, what I see is that there's more connections between different departments, between different topics like um, fraud prevention, financial crime prevention, money laundering, KYC, and so on. All of this is, is brought together. And that is um, on the right track, I would say. But what is lacking a little bit recently, I think, is um, not the technology side of it, but the customer interactions. So um, making sure that, that customers get the support they need when they spot something unusual, that if something goes wrong, we, um, as banks, we, we, we support the, the, the customer in sort of clearing what is, what is going wrong. And um, a large part of that is that fraudsters have changed their attack mode a little bit. So we'll see a lot of scams. We see a lot of social engineering. We see a lot of um, attacking the, the weakest link in the chain, attacking the customer, and not so much attacking some, exactly. some process in between. And I think there more needs to be done. Okay. Thanks for that. I want to go to you, Stephen, now and ask you, um, you know, we sort of have the view on the, the corporate and the bank, you know, what are fintechs doing to help and how is it affecting fintechs? Fintechs can definitely be more agile in this so they can adopt new methodologies for protection as new ways of cybercrime happen. Uh, but at the same point in time, like when it comes to transactional fraud, Fintechs really don't have the data needed to actually be able to do the AI analysis and the machine learning models to, to counter this. And there's also kind of a double-edged sword with fintechs because they are so agile, they use a lot of open technology, which makes them also more vulnerable because it's well known how these systems work. Whereas the, the banks use more kind of legacy technology. So it's a lot more closed off and more difficult to get in. So uh, for both of you, actually, you know, how do you think we can solve some of these problems? You know, you mentioned your, that you feel, uh, you know, now the private person is being more, uh, or the attack is more vicious against individuals because they're easier to penetrate. So who can really help? Is it fintechs, big tech? Um, what's going on? 
<laughs> I think everyone can can play their part and has to play their part. So big tech, if, if you talk about the the gaffers of this world and or gaffam or whatever, um, mm -hmm. Google and uh, Apple, Amazon and so on, um, they do provide some broader protection mechanisms that work for the wider audience, I would say. So they, they provide authentication mechanisms, they provide malware protection, screening of, of malicious content in some cases. Not perfect, but um, at least there, something is in place. But not all of that translates well into the financial services sector. So, so the... In, in a way, this is a niche in, in which we are operating, right? <laughs> so um, for, for Microsoft, for example, it's not an attractive, scalable business to provide fraud protection for um, financial payments unless they want to provide their own payment service. So I think um, big tech has a limited role to play. Fintechs, on the other hand, as, as Stephen said, are, are very agile, are very... Um, technology savvy, very technology focused. So they can definitely provide um, very good solutions for, for parts of the problem. I think where the challenges come in is if you want to bring this all together as, as a bank. So how do you sort of bring together five different fintechs and your, your Microsoft and your Facebook uh, connection and make it work and make it secure? Yeah, I think we can also maybe like governments could assist with this as well with digital identification just to make something where you actually can do KYC more efficiently and easier. So maybe even governments assist. And I know that they do have like identif digital identification in Germany. It's just, it's not really adopted. Whereas in yeah. Sweden, it's, they have bank ID, which is heavily adopted and pretty much every system uses it. It's a perfect example. So, so Sweden with their... Um, digital identifier or the unique identifier per person um new account fraud application fraud is not really much of an issue there because you have this very safe and secure um identifier i think a lot of countries in in particular germany um are very careful with this kind of thing it smells like big brother to a lot of people and that's why um i think adoption is so different between different countries Yes, and Sweden's kind of a lot more open as a society where they, they they really do trust the government not to be spying on them, even though everything's exposed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hmm, reality and perception. No, I've never said that. Okay. Do you think that the pandemic is actually making the fight against fraud and cybercrime more difficult? Definitely, uh, I would say. I mean... Um... Any, any disruption, right, is an opportunity for fraudsters to sort of, um, that, they, that they will use in, in some way, shape or form. And uh, the pandemic is, I think, the biggest disruption society has experienced in the last few years. <laughs> I think there's, there's no, not an exaggeration. Um, and what has the pandemic brought us? It has brought us uncertainty and fear it has brought us social distancing it has brought us working from home and um, this uncertainty for example is perfect entry point for a fraudster um, if you want to scam someone if if you play with people's fears if you sort of hook onto their um, uncertainties and their their um, anxieties then um, it's much easier for you to to get um, 
get into uh, yeah. the wallets of the the victims and this this social distancing as well um i mean if you sometimes you need someone to tell you dude what you're doing there right now i, I don't think that is right right and and this is um what the fraudsters are um, exploiting right now. So you don't have the colleague looking over your shoulder. Are you sure you? this is the CEO writing you that email that you have to transfer this money over there? And are you sure you want to buy this super cheap um, television, which is sold out everywhere else, but there on this website, it just costs half as much. So um, the social distancing, I think, has made things easier for fraudsters as well. What about the whole, you know, you mentioned it, I want to hone in on one of the, fa the aspects or facets, which is working from home. So, you know, uh, what, if, what about working from home? What have we learned here? And what are the issues or the remedies uh, to make it safer or better? Yeah, um, apart from the, the social aspects, so not having the colleagues nearby, right? There's, of course, um, tremendous technical challenges. So, Two years ago, I, I was fortunate because I worked in a company that was used to having people work from home and was used to having a very complex infrastructure of computers and services and cloud and uh, data centers and everything. And um, it wasn't much of an issue. My wife, for example, she works in a very different industry and um, nobody was working from home two years ago. So they had to make it work real quick. And um, this opened a lot of attack vectors, a lot of attack surface for, for cybercrime and also for fraud. I mean, just having people work from home makes everything more complex. You have more network connection, you have more devices, bring your own device. A lot of people use their, their own mobile phone these days and not the company provided one. Um, you have all these insecure routers and devices in the home networks where, where people are working. So um, I think the technological side was a real challenge. And I hope that by now, most companies have worked it out more or less. <laughs> And we recently had a podcast on ransomware. And the prognosis, once the attack was in progress, is pretty bleak. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? <laughs> ransomware is, is a real pest. So th this is um, really the, I think, the, in the grand scheme of themes, uh, uh, theme of things, this is right now the biggest cybersecurity threat. And um, from bad guy's perspective, it's the perfect crime because it's very low effort for the bad actor. It's um, very um, low risk because you just shoot out your, your phishing emails and your malware and you, you install this on people's machines and um, some of it sticks, some of it gets deflected. Um, and you have pretty good yield, right? You get pretty um, good, good <laughs> ransom out of that in air quotes, um, because um, people really care about their data. And if you encrypt that data and if you hold it ransom, then yeah, then people are likely to pay up. And they, they have been very smart, these, these ransomware gangs, I have to say, because they're not just targeting big businesses, but they're also going into mass uh, mass exploitation, so to say. They, they're, they're going to a lot of smaller students and encrypting their, their homework and this kind of thing. Oh my mm. God. Okay. <laughs> well, that, that 
uh, on that happy note, let's move on to another hot topic, which is for me, crypto. Mm-hmm. Uh, for actually for both of us, Stephen and I have spent a lot of time talking about it, thinking about it, but we've spoken extensively, as I said, about it, you know, what it is and what it isn't uh, in previous podcasts. And Stephen has addressed wallets, keys and safety. Uh, it seems to me that the hackers are getting the upper hand at the moment. I, maybe I'm wrong, but that's how it feels. And yet consumers continue to buy and hold digital currencies and companies are thinking about it or even or even doing it. I don't know. It, escape, it, it escapes my um, comprehension why, except for the fact that we all like a free lunch and a quick buck, why this is gaining so in popularity. What are your thoughts here? <laughs> how is it going to actually... You know, uh, you know how. Uh, what can we expect in terms of the whole, you know, cyber side? Is it going to get more secure? Is this the way it is? What do you think? Yeah, I've, I'm, I'm following the whole cryptocurrency scene for many, many years. I've, I've read that white paper, that famous one back then. Uh, I could have mined Bitcoins on my own PC when I first heard about it. I should have maybe, I'm not sure. But no, honestly, I'm, I'm a crypto skeptic and I see so much fraud and abuse around that. And I see so much greed as well yes. so and, and it's it's a bit weird what has happened in the last years in in that uh in that space in that scene so on one hand crypto has reinvented the banking system to a certain extent has also realized that some things that are commonplace in the financial payments space um which they wanted to overcome actually are good things like being able to reverse certain transactions and certain regulations sometimes is helpful if your wallet keys got stolen. Um, And at the same time, the banking system, after a lot of hesitation, has embraced cryptocurrencies and is is sort of incorporating incorporating that into their, their portfolios. So what we all realized, I think, a few years ago is that cryptocurrencies are not so much a currency, not so much a replacement for euros and dollars and so on. They are just um, a speculative asset at this point. And it might be that that um, there will be some um, very widely adopted cryptocurrencies which are used for actual payments. But right now, this is um, this is just a minority. And all this um, these security issues around handling wallets yourself um, brought a lot of people to not keep their own wallets and not try to keep their passphrases secure and not think about cold storage and, and how to how to to handle all this this crazy th- stuff and I, I think there's a good reason for that I mean I don't keep paper copies or paper versions of the stock that I own in in my in my house um, I, I don't want anyone stealing that and I, there's no use in, in having it myself. So I have my um, my broker that does that for me, my, my provider, right? The same thing happened in crypto and um, the traditional banks and, and uh, providers didn't want to touch that, uh, that stuff in the beginning. But then some players like these, these um, big um, exchanges and so on, they got really big and really, really rich very quickly. And now the traditional finance system also wants a slice of the pie. And that is understandable. That is very understandable. So 
it seems we we just saw or are seeing the transformation of cryptocurrency into just one more asset class that is handled by the same players as before and not as the libertarian ideas of cryptocurrency in the beginning made it look like. Yeah, but can we make it safe? Uh, I mean, you just said, you know, every, everybody's jumping in. I mean, my view is I see the banks saying, okay, we're not going to, we're not going to deal in it, but we're going to hold it and we're going to facilitate buying and selling it. We're going to do all the stuff in the background that banks do well and try to make, you know, a fortune on that. But can we make it safe? I mean, from a technology perspective, as I said, I'm, I'm, I'm a tech guy, right? Um, by, by, uh, my background, as from a technology perspective, cryptocurrencies are super secure. So the blockchain is a fantastic piece of technology that keeps stuff secure. The handling is, is the problem. And banks are really good at handling valuable assets. So it's understandable that um, they, they are going into that business now after quite a bit of delay. And I would trust my bank more to hold um, my millions and millions of <laughs> dollars worth of cryptocurrency. I don't have any, by the way. Um, <laughs> that makes three of us now. <laughs> yeah, I, I would trust them more than I would trust some weird uh, exchange with uh, uh, which is operating from, I don't know, Venezuela or somewhere else. Stephen, I know you want to weigh in on this. Please, what are your thoughts? <laughs> um, I, I like the thing that the banks came up with. It's, it's all about speculation because I, I completely agree. And I watch a lot of the Gen Zers on YouTube and they celebrate becoming millionaires and but they also celebrate losing all the money. It's like the weirdest <laughs> environment ever. It's like pretty cool. Like there's competitions you can lose the most money even. And I think it's because... You're scaring me. <laughs> I think it's just become so gamified, like the fintechs are even gamifying it. So they just see it as this fun game where it's just pretend money, it's not real money. And it makes me wonder if Bitcoin didn't exist and the other cryptos, like where would all this money otherwise be? Would it be in the stock markets? Would real estate be increasing more? It's just like a, a, a new asset bubble was created and... Where, would, where did all this money come from? Where's it going to end up? Probably in Venezuela <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Yeah, yeah and it's really... You're, it's, you're, you're talking it, it, about... Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> sorry. It, it's, it's really amazing, um, Steve, when, when we say that. If you follow these um, these subreddits, these, these exchange forums where people discuss about their cryptocurrencies and show off their, their gains and their losses... It, it feels like computer games. It doesn't feel like yeah. this is actually something that um, might be your pension fund. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a generation has been brought up with gamified banking and we can't comprehend it because we're too old, maybe. <laughs> and, and it's just the craziest thing I've ever seen. But it's, it's really entertaining at the same time. Oh God, yeah, I, I think I think maybe age does play into it because you're a little bit closer to your pension. I know I am, so uh, you know I, I don't feel like playing with any of it. But you know, before we go off on another subject, I still have to ask both of you. Yes, I I, I love what you said. You're you know that the banks have taken something. You know, the blockchain is secure, and the banks have taken the handling, or has take, have taken some of the handling in so that that's safer. But we still have 
you know, what about people losing their keys, losing, you know, the, the panic of, uh, I suppose part of it has been fixed because uh, it's not as easy to penetrate the bank and steal your assets or they're guaranteed, but I don't know. I'm still very, I still worry about this. Yeah, and I mean, um, there's always a residual risk, if that is the right term, I'm not, not sure, that um, banks mess it up or that the exchange messes it up. But I think it's more contained than if you have um, 20 million people each with their own wallet on some laptop somewhere where the SSD can, can break and they don't have a backup or they forget their passphrase or anything like that. Okay. Absolutely, fair enough. Um, go to maybe perhaps a different kind of a topic, which is um, IoT, but it's also hot. It's also being discussed. Um, depending on where a person or a company's credentials are, are actually stored, what, what do you think? What will be the future? Is it, is it more on within ecosystems and websites, or is it more on devices? Uh, what makes more sense? What's safer? I think the problem with IoT these days, and it's slowly getting better, but it's still um, horrible in some, some ways. The, the problem with IoT is that many devices are quickly and sloppily built from, from a software perspective and from a security perspective, and that they are not properly maintained. So not properly maintained by their users because people don't care if they have this, this cheap camera that they put somewhere, whether it's updated or not. Um, and they're not properly maintained by the vendors. So there's a lot of open security issues in, in these IoT devices. And I think by now, per person worldwide, we have like five or six or seven IoT devices or even more, I'm not tracking that. <laughs> and this um, opens so many security um, issues. So getting into a network via an IoT device is, is commonplace these days. It's one of the most common um, attack vectors um, also to get into corporate networks. and. I mean, you, you talked about credentials. So credentials should never be, and nor do they need to be on the devices, but you need to integrate these IoT devices into some kind of authentication infrastructure, right? And yeah. Yeah. again, technology is there. So this is an, a problem which is understood and researched, and there's there's good um, ways to... to um, make that work in a secure manner, but often um, the implementation lags behind what would be possible. <laughs> so we know we're just not doing it. Oh, good, that's, that's, <laughs> that, that's great. Okay, Stephen, what do you think? Yeah, Internet of Things worries me just as much. Because um, if you think you can make the most secure network ever, then somebody plugs a Wi-Fi light bulb into it and <laughs> There goes your security. You've got like a way into your network because who knows what software is in these light bulbs. The manufactured in countries all over the world. It's very easy to change the supply chain for that. So it could be malicious from the day one or it could just be very open like, like York said, where it's just badly written software. Yeah. And, so, and the more devices we keep plugging in, the more vulnerable we get. And how are we going to track all these devices? Who's going to do that? 
<laughs> yeah, and I, I think we actually see kind of market failure there. And um, because people buy the cheapest LED light bulb, right? <laughs> and they buy the cheap um, camera or the camera that has the nicest video features and not the best security features. So I, I think we will need, we do need some kind of regulation here that um, requires a certain level of security, that requires a certain period in which you do get security updates and, and fixes from the vendor and possibly also some, I don't know, some liability of vendors for, for failure. Does, does this mean regulation? What else can it be? I mean, um, the, the, the customer decides with their wallet, right? And if, um, if you can make the light bulb 10 cents cheaper because you rush out quick software and then dismantle the, the software team and maybe shut down the, the, the company altogether, then I think regulation is the only way. Let's get back to the topic of data because we, we've mentioned it briefly. Um, technology is key, but what do you think about the better use of data to understand and enhance a company's security position? Do you think this is something that's actually good for like the quality of the data, including foreign or multi-country data? Um, when you say multi-country data, what, what do you mean? So um, aggregating uh, information about like behavior yes. or like is it is it useful to aggregate or keep them separate because it's so individualistic ah interesting topic so uh, this, this is exactly what we um in the fraud prevention space have been doing in the last couple of years right um collecting data and aggregating data and i think you have to find a mix so you have to find a mix between individualistic <laughs> data and um <laughs> knowing what is normal for Stephen or for Kate as an individual. And at the same time, um, you have to understand customer segments or clusters of, of, of people and, and how they behave. Because sometimes um, if, if you have a new customer, for example, as a bank and, and have just onboarded someone, given them um, an account and, 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 uh, and a card or anything like that, you don't know much about them yet. But you can sort of learn from cohorts. You can learn from uh, the, the wider public what is and what isn't normal. So as always, it's, it's, it's a mix, right? So do you feel like there'll be more collaboration across companies for this? Kind of like the credit bureaus did to make more shopping information available for credit worthiness? Will the same happen for fraud and security? Difficult topic, difficult topic. Again, um, this feels dystopian to a lot of people and collecting more sensitive data um, is, I think, a big no-no in many jurisdictions and in, in many, um, how to say, many industries. And also data is, is an asset, right? So a lot of companies are not willing to share data. Um, it's, it's a bit better actually in the fraud um, sector and in the security sector because everyone is in the same boat, right? If, if a fraudster doesn't care whether they are um, defrauding bank A, B, or C or customers of, of bank A, B, or C. So their sharing of fraudulent um, identity information is a bit more common. Also in, in, in telco space, for example, they, they, they do this um, in, in some countries. But um, there's always 
privacy concerns and there's always um, this this feeling that companies are taking advantage of you if, if they share your information with someone else. Yeah, I agree. Understood. Yeah, a topic that's very close to my heart is open banking and open finance, uh, you know, which goes back to the data question we were just talking to and also the increased surface for attack, sort of opening another flank. Um, you know, what do you see as the dangers and can they be mitigated? I mean, is this something that's in the end of the day that will be good because it gives us more or it's going to be bad because it will become so much more dangerous? Your thoughts? Yeah, the thing is, um, sometimes these these terms are a little bit misleading, right? So open banking has a lot of um, security measures, protection, authentication built in, um, in particular, the, the, the newer forms, right? Um, with a strong customer authentication, a lot of um, conditions around when you can and cannot provide access to, to uh, payments or to, to account information. And arguably, um, some banks in particular make open banking too secure to, to sort of lock out other players and because they don't want their customers to, to actually um, be too comfortable dealing with a lot of different providers and make it not too easy for them to um, work with five different bank accounts. You want to have the, 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 the majority yeah. share, right? I t totally understand. I just want to challenge you for a second before you go on, though, because you're talking more about, you know, open banking and its classical sort of PSD2 sense, where it was very much a question of payments and particular payments, and therefore it was very regulated. I'd like to go a step further and, and, and talk about the use cases that I think we're all thinking about now is how we can actually do more with this data, which could be less regulated and open more flanks or am I wrong here? Mm, I mean, in, in, in my mind and correct me if I'm wrong, open data is, is more in, in the sense of uh, how to say um, scientific data and, and government and, and uh, communal data, so to say. In the banking world, I don't see that much open data, data sharing, but um, happy, happy to learn more there. <laughs> well, I, I think what the banks, maybe, maybe to put it this way, I think what the banks would like to achieve or what the clients might like to achieve from the banks, you know, this is a sort of maybe a chicken and an egg question, but, you know, if I can consolidate, you know, payment data or balance data from various banks, can I do that for loan data? Can I do that for foreign exchange data? Can I do that for all kinds of data to make my life easier that I don't have to pull it from different sources if I'm a company, but it's not as regulated. So, but it's just, it can be just as sensitive. Ah, uh, you mean so the 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 aggregators that um, allow yeah. you to to connect yeah. I mean, your for me for me the uh, whole idea of open data um, you know when I think of the banking world has to do with the fact that all of a sudden third party providers can pull in you know now that they know how to do it and they have APIs and they have experience and blah blah you know they can actually pull together and aggregate more information or they can go in on behalf of their clients and and maybe not just make a payment but deliver something. So I just mm. I'm just saying going a step further. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm very skeptical of sharing too much. So from a consumer perspective, first of all, right? I'm I'm very skeptical of sharing 
too much of that kind of information with with a third party. Um, it's still already there. There's these um, these portals that allow you to basically connect your accounts and your insurances and, and all kind of contracts you have um, up and running and to optimize them for you and find find ways to maybe pay five bucks less per year for, for your car insurance. Okay. Um, but I mean, there's always um, the intention behind that to, to make money on, on, on behalf of the, uh, on the side of the third party. So I would be wary about that. I, I, I'm not sure. But I, all right, let me ask Stephen though, because you know that's perhaps more the uh, retail side. But what about the wholesale side? There, you know, I still feel there's a lot of there's a lot of power and a lot of meat. And and if you take TIS for example, that's perhaps an example. Yeah, no, definitely. There's it's a lot easier for people to bring data in once you have a platform to do so. And and from that, you can kind of do it in a way that keeps anonymous from all parties so they can actually use the results to get fraudulent things. Because the big problem with, with data is you need so much of it just to find that one event that, that triggers. So you may need a billion records just to see that one event you're looking for. And being independent makes it a lot easier to do that with a platform because you can trigger those events and then build models to look for those events because you actually have enough training data to do so. And then through the APIs, allow systems to be able to real-time get those events back. So there's definitely advantages to being independent for that. Mm -hmm. We briefly talked about gamification early, especially around crypto. Gamification seems to be the answer to almost everything these days. It rewards us for certain behaviors, make mundane tasks more interesting, it also leads us to do things we wouldn't necessarily normally do unless we get the reward. Do you think gamification could also help us with fraud or cybercrime as well? I do see gamification used in awareness trainings quite a bit um, lately. So you have these uh, test phishing emails and so on, and you get a badge if you correctly identify them. And um, you, you have these uh, security competitions, and, and that is more of in a, in a corporate context, I would say. So I, the the last three companies I worked for did this kind of thing, <laughs> and I see it sometimes used also. <laughs> I sometimes see it used also in in a wider context. So government um, campaigns against scams where you can play a game and spot the fraudster and this kind of thing. And I think there's there's potential there to, to um, make this a bit more common because certain audiences will, will quite like that, I think. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like everyone's going to start gamifying everything with badges. And you're going to have so many badges, it'd be like being in the Boy Scouts again. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I love it. So gamification has place here too. So, I mean, we suspected it and now we know it. <laughs> okay. Um, so to sort of wrap up, I mean, two things. Uh, first, you know, what are the, what do you think is the future? What are the cool things that are coming down that, that, that you know about that aren't perhaps here yet, but that we can expect and, and sort of any final thoughts that you'd like to leave us with here? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a ton of really cool things happening in the 
AI machine learning space. There's new approaches, new technologies every day. Um, the, there's, there's more use cases that can get covered with um, with these approaches where, where these um, where machine learning model can really help to take better decisions and um, performance of the models also gets gets better right and at the same time um, things like explainability and governance ethical AI and so get get more um, attention which which I think is great um, one technology I think to look out for is graph computing. So there's a lot of exciting stuff happening there. And I think we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg here. So looking at relations between data points, between entities and using them to gain more insights. But more down to earth, um, I think what is interesting to see is that apart from the data scientists and the technology folks, right, <laughs> the business users also get more empowered lately. So you're not, um, you don't have to rely on the IT teams for each and everything. So the, the, the keyword to watch here is low code. That is exactly something that I do in my new job now as well, which sort of gives the the business users or the so-called citizen developer, um, the tools to create these uh, these these processes that allow you to to cover pretty complex workflows and to integrate a lot of data and get a lot of the work which is currently pretty manual and pretty copy paste into Excel sheet and and send email here and there and so on, get it automated. So that is, I think, uh, a really interesting one. Stephen, what would you say? Last words, words of advice. We've touched on a lot of subjects today, um, really interesting points. And it definitely seems like the scariest thing is Internet of Things and, and crime. Like we know that as we collect more data and the world becomes more digitally connected and complex at the same time, there's going to be more sophisticated ways to commit crime and also simple ways to commit crime. And it kind of reminds me of the internet when it first came up and computers didn't have firewalls and you could see all your neighbors on, on the network. <laughs> and it makes me think it does need regulation, especially software, but maybe a few big techs can actually come in and do the regulation just like for the internet. The internet's fairly still self-regulated. So maybe it could be the same for software as well. So that was best practices. Or maybe in the end, governments will just have to regulate which devices they allow and which ones they don't. Okay, so regulation and the question of how and when and who will rise to the challenge. But uh, no doubt, just like everything else, we will come up with something and uh, conquer this as well. Okay, so thanks so much to you, Jörg, and thank you, Stephen. And thanks to all of you who are listening to Digital Dump. Our aim is to tackle a topic of interest in the world of technology on a weekly basis. Digital Dump is now available on 10 platforms, including Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. If you have a topic you'd like to know more about or someone you'd like to hear from, please let us know. Thanks and bye-bye for now. Thank you very much. And thanks for having me. Thanks everyone. Bye. <laughs>